Greetings, uh, fire philosophers. Agnes Callard is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago. She was born in Hungary, raised in Budapest, Rome, and New York. She studied at the University of Chicago, Berkeley, and Princeton before receiving her PhD from Chicago, where she now teaches ancient philosophy and ethics. In addition to being a popular teacher, Professor Collard has published in the Boston Review, the New York Times, and the New Yorker, and her recent book, Aspiration, The Agency of Becoming, is the topic of our discussion today. Dale Wright is well known to participants in our Substack. He is author of Philosophical Meditations on Zen Buddhism from Cambridge University Press, and four books from Oxford University Press, including What is Buddhist Enlightenment? and Living Skillfully, Buddhist Philosophy of Life. Dale has spoken glowingly about Agnes's book, Aspiration, and has a few questions to pose to get our conversation going. Okay, well, let me just say at the outset, Agnes, and to all of you, that your book has been extremely helpful to me, the way it clarifies, helps me articulate themes that have been central to my work for some time. So I've been writing about aspiration without the clarification that your work produces. I hadn't realized, for example, that aspiration can be thought of as a distinct, puzzling form of reason, an almost paradoxical form of agency. So this clarification is beginning to be really helpful for me. So I just want to express my appreciation, my admiration for what you've done here. The clarity and insight of your work on this theme are really extraordinary, and I'm in awe of it. So thank you for that, and thank you for joining us tonight. So let's just start by talking about aspiration. Maybe you can just jump in and say what we're talking about to clarify, or I can give a mumbled version and then you fix it and repair it and elaborate whichever way you want. Aspiration is the rational process of value acquisition. And I can say more, but tell me what. Tell yeah, me what keep keep you going. What what else is uh, of interest here? Why why is it a different form of reason? You call it proleptic reason, or aspirational reason to just simplify. In what sense is it different? So a lot of the practical reasoning that we do is reasoning from value. So we have a set of values. We have a set of desirable. There's things that we want, and then we're trying to realize those things in the world. We're trying to make what we want happen. And in aspiration, we reason towards value. So we're trying to acquire values. We're trying to bring it about that we're the sort of people who have a certain set of desires and affective attachments and uh, even cognitive states like beliefs about uh, what's valuable. And so I think the thing that's really sort of puzzling and interesting about aspiration is almost contained in my use of the word rational there. That is, I'm just asserting that you can rationally acquire values and you, there's, you know, some reasons for thinking that that's not possible, that what you can do rationally is live out the values that you already have, but that there isn't any rational basis for acquiring one set of values rather than another, at least there isn't a rational basis for acquiring a core set of values or a fundamental set of values. You might sometimes, you know, want to acquire a new value because it is a way of fulfilling an old value. But I say, I'm going to use a different word for that. I'm going to call it self-cultivation because that doesn't raise the same sorts of puzzles. 
because there you really are at the end of the day, reasoning from value, the value that you've already got and acquiring this new value is a way of fulfilling that. And so you're not, you know, that's not fundamentally a reasoning towards value. And so in these cases of reasoning towards value, you might've thought that that wasn't a thing you could do. And that's really where this book came from was me realizing that in a couple of different areas of philosophy, the very possibility of this phenomenon seems to be ruled out by the way in which people divide up the territory. And yet it's obvious that it really happens. And so we just need to divide up the territory all different in a whole bunch of different areas of philosophy. Yeah. Okay. That's terrific. Um, Because I come out of uh, the discipline of religious studies, aspiration of a major value change is a fundamental phenomenon, right? It's happening in every tradition, but there has never been, to my knowledge, the kind of articulation about how it differs and what kind of reasoning that is by comparison. So that's been really helpful. But can you um, clarify the contrast between ambition and aspiration? That seems like the contrast that's really important. Yeah. So in a way, I actually just think that that aspiration sits, the one way to see it is to sit see it as sitting between, that is not being the same as, self-cultivation that I just explained, where you acquire a new value in order to fulfill an old value, and ambition, where you are realizing a value that you have that is making it real, achieving it, but you, and, and that might involve large changes in your life, and it might take a lot of time, and that's why we think of it as big, but the process of realizing those values and of acquiring the things that you want isn't at the same time a process of learning how to want those things. So you're not really acquiring the value when you're being ambitious, you're just acquiring the valued object. And so like, you know, the classic example of ambition would be the ambition to have a lot of money or to have a lot of power where the person who wants money and power they're not confused about why they want those things. They're not like, I wonder what it would be like to like money or to like, they already do like them. They already do value them. They just don't have them yet. Whereas the person who's trying to value classical music in the example that I used throughout the book, they don't know what it's like to value it. They don't know what it's like to enjoy it. They don't know what the good thing is that they're going to be getting out of it. And the process of acquiring the value is the process of learning how to care about something. So the ambitious person isn't learning how to care about something. They already do care about it. They just don't have the thing that they care about. Um, can I just mention uh, another example you give in the book that's really helpful? The young student who goes up to medical school and her motivation for going up to medical school is that her parents would love it if she did this and she would become a respected member of a professional class, all good. And by the way, she'd make lots of money. And she already values all those things already. But as she goes off to medical school, she may encounter someone, may or may not, whose motives for practicing medicine are not those at all. Somebody who whose motives are that they really want to help people or that they, they want to live in a healthy community and they want to be the person who dedicates herself to achieving that end. And so once she sees that and she realizes, well, wait a minute, those values are beyond my own. Those are really, I'm inspired by that. And so she then aspires, she still has her old values, but she aspires to go towards them. That example was helpful for me in all kinds of ways. 
Yeah, because that you can then see, you know, the ambitious medical student versus the aspirational medical student. And that I think it really is true with, you know, just about any career that the way of valuing the particular sorts of benefits that that career can provide to other people is one that you only learn by doing the career. So you can say, okay, lawyers give people advice or doctors, you know, help heal their bodies or teachers like teach them things, but you don't really know what it is like concretely to offer those benefits until you start doing it. And, you know, so you, 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 you learn what it is to value the kind of benefit that a teacher provides, like over the course of teaching by teaching. One thing that you for me, from my point of view and my reading it, you imply without ever saying this in this way is that aspiration is generated by inspiration. So you don't just sit back and think, oh, I think I'll aspire to do this or that. You are inspired by meeting someone or reading a book or seeing a movie or a play or some story about a human being who embodies values that you take to be really impressive beyond far beyond your own values so mm. so it takes that outside force to get you to even consider leaving your own values does that sound right so i think that it's i think that inspiration often plays a role i don't think it always has to be at the very beginning so like over the over this past year, I always read lots of novels, and I happened to, you know, in I don't know June or something, I I read for the first time a novel by Emile Zola. Uh, it's called The Beast Within. Okay. And then I'm like, huh, I think I'll read another one. You know, there's something interesting about this novel. I read another one, and then, and then I sort of learned that these two novels were part of a 20 novel series about a given family, and I'm like, I think I'll read all 20 of these novels. So I took on this project of reading these 20 novels. And then like at some point along the way, but there wasn't some moment that I could, you know, I like became really inspired by Zola and by his quest, by this like incredible quest that he had to like show every aspect of French life, you know, every bit of class structure, you know, what it's like to be a miner, what it's like to be a laundress, this incredible details about work, what, what work concretely is like. And, and I'm like, I really want to like learn about all this. I read like a history book about French and France in that period. I, I went and got like Zola's notebooks because he meticulously documented all the details. Like I became totally obsessed. And, you know, I think that, and I'm not at the end of this process yet. And I've written an essay now on Zola, working on another essay. And, and this is not something where I'm not someone who, you know, it's not my area of expertise. I don't generally work on fiction, whatever, but like, but, but I think that it's not quite right to say I was inspired right at the beginning. It was like, like, I almost, I was, I was starting to do something before I even realized that I was starting to do it. And there were these sort of moments along the way where I was like, you know, I read an essay by at some, some point along the line, I read an essay by Henry James on Zola and I read one by Guy de Maupassant, the short story writer. Oh, yeah. And both of those essays kind of distilled for me something of like the awesomeness of Zola and they allowed me to be inspired by him. But again, I didn't read them right at the beginning. So I, I've actually been quite often, we start doing something and we're doing a bunch of stuff that we're not even that aware of or that conscious of. And you know, I'm reading novels all the time. I just finished a novel by Goethe and I, I just started one yesterday by Flaubert. Like I'm, so it's, oh, there's, that's always the air I breathe is like reading more stuff. 
but I never know when it's going to congeal into something. And, and I think that it's especially true that when you travel a long aspirational distance and you look back, there, there are going to be these moments you're going to want to pick out saliently as inspirational, right? Where somehow they condense for you the value as it was showing up for you gradually over a long period of time. I don't, I don't know that that's always sort of historically realistic. Like probably when I look back on this five years from now, I'll be like, yeah, what really turned me around was Henry James or Guy de Maupassant. And like maybe that, that may have played a role, but I think it was a lot of role of just me thinking about it and not being that aware of it. Um, mm. And so there's something, I think this relates to an interesting fact about aspiration, which is that the beginnings of it are just quite incoherent. The beginning yeah. is quite messy. It blends into other things you're doing. You don't notice that you're doing it. And it becomes more and more organized over time. And so I guess I'm, I'm, I think that yes, inspiration plays a role, but I, I, I guess I think it actually rarely plays the role of it's that thing that gets yeah. something. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. You can be inspired without having any moment of inspiration, just continually to see something that's there that attracts you, that draws you yeah, for it. So for, for you then Zolop becomes an aspiration what can you say about that transformation that move from being whatever it was, just a, a whim at the outset yeah. or an idea to finally being an aspiration? Yeah. So I think that like in this case, it's like there's something he was trying to do with his novels that I think is really original that I, where I'm like, I keep seeing glosses on it, but being like, no, that's not quite it. And and I both want to understand what that is, and I want to be able to appreciate it. And it has something to do with the fact, the way I would put the where I am now in my study of it is he's only half a novelist. He's also like his other half is like he's some kind of social scientist, but social science didn't really exist yet at the it's time. Observer. Right? It's the nascent, yeah. the beginning. He's an observer. That's right. But he's an observer, but he's a yeah. he's particularly he's a, he's an observer of small local equilibria, right? So he will just notice a, like a little tiny part of the world how in effect, it can't change because everything will rebalance. And so he, like in Zola, whenever there's a revolutionary, whenever there's somebody who wants things to be different, who's like a nonconformist, it never works out. And because like they're, they never think like more than one step ahead and they never think about the fact that their little local equilibrium is gonna react back to them and it's gonna reassert itself. And so there's a weird way in which even though he was living, you know, at a time of incredible social change and, you know, during like the kind of the way that one history book that I put it, uh, that I read, put it is sort of the colonization of France by Paris is the period that he lived through. Um, and he is really attentive to the way in which we are stuck in these little micro worlds that we don't even notice how much everything we do is shaped by the need to fit into such a world. So I think that's a really interesting observation. I think I myself am stuck in those things and don't see it. And so my aspiration like to appreciate Zola is also to like get this into view in the world that I live in. And, but yeah, it's also to see it at work, to see what he is focusing on. Because it's like, I'm reading Flaubert now and Flaubert is so different. You know, Flaubert is just like super into human psychology. He's just like, you know, he wants to give you someone's stream of consciousness at the same time he wants to analyze that stream of consciousness from the outside and tells you, here's why she thinks like this. 
And Zola's like barely interested in anyone's thoughts. He just like doesn't care um, because he thinks all your thoughts, that's window dressing. We are stuck in these real social like dynamics that you can dress it up for yourself however you like, but that's the reality and you don't see it. You don't see that you're in it. And so the, you know, he is, Zola's not a high class author. Like he's, you know, he's like second tier, third tier novelist wise, but you know, he wasn't trying to write the best sentences. He wasn't trying to do the best like stream of consciousness. He wasn't like, you know, like modernist experimental, whatever. It's that there's something in the world he wanted to show you. And I think that's really like, you know, kind of exciting that somebody tried to do something like that with the novel. Uh, and I want to like, yeah, I want to grasp that. And then like, there's all kinds of different stuff I do to try to do that, including like emailing Zola scholars and telling them like, hey, please talk to me about Zola, reading books about Zola, writing essays, watching movies and TV shows that reenact the movies and being very annoyed at their lack of fidelity to the original, <laughs> you know, just tons of tons of different stuff. And, but then also reading, I'm gonna, you know, I realized while I barely read any Balzac and Zola was so influenced by Balzac, I can't understand Zola unless I go and read like at least, you know, 10 or 20 Balzac novels. So now I'm like thrown into doing all these things that all turn out to be a part of this project that I hardly knew I was getting myself into. You're being carried away, totally taken away. So this sounds wonderful. Where can we find your Zola essay and the one that's coming up? Uh, philosophical so, journals or elsewhere? No. So the first one was like a really small essay for uh, a publication called Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D. Uh -huh. And it's about the novel of The Lady's Paradise, which is Zola's most optimistic novel. And it's about shopping. The novel is about the first department store. And that's what I, and I write about this and I write about Zola's insights into like the kind of lust we have for shopping and the kind of subjective, like the, 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 the feel of capitalism as a subject. And there's a, you know, he, 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 one thing that's super interesting about him is that he's really not a moralist by contrast, you know, even by contrast to someone like Dickens, like the poor in Zola are depraved, just like the rich, everyone's depraved. <laughs> and, and so he's not trying to say capitalism is evil. Uh, he's not trying to say it's good. He's just trying to show you what it is. And he's like, here's what it is to be caught inside of it. Here's what it is to want stuff. And that's what this novel, I think, is really Ladies' Paradise is about. Anyway, so my essay is about that. I, and it's in Unheard. But the next one that I'm I'm writing is going to be longer. And it's going to be more like my attempt to work through what is this sort of sociological project or something that he has? What is it that he tried to do with the novel? Where I, like, I just think it's really poorly captured with the word naturalism. You know, people say, oh, he's a naturalist, which is just like saying he's representing the world. And it's like, yeah, but like, so, who, so is Flaubert. Is so like... <laughs> exactly right so that doesn't it doesn't seem to me that that captures the 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 bird's eye view character that you like of, of a zola novel where you don't care about the characters that's another interesting thing you just don't care that much about the characters you're not that invested in them because you're looking at the system and that's you know yeah anyway no oh, amazing I'm, I'm glad you're being carried away that's wonderful <laughs> okay could i Actually, could I draw us back to aspiration for a little bit by uh, explaining an example of religious aspiration that I mentioned to you in an email that's kind of an extreme form where you're aspiring towards something that you can't possibly achieve. At least I don't think you can possibly achieve it. So 
in in one kind of Buddhism, I don't know how much you know about Buddhism, but in one kind of Buddhism, one of the two major forms, there's something called the Bodhisattva vow. And devotees, at some point, if they're really devoted, if they're really interested and they do meditation and so on, they're encouraged to ceremoniously, in a ceremony, take a vow. And the vow, I would want to demythologize for this conversation uh, enough, so, so I put it like this. The vow is to engage in practices and in work for through many years to transform yourself and your values so that you go from being someone who values your own interests and concerns to the point where you you care as much about the well-being of other people, in fact, all other people, as you do about yourself. Not that you what you would do for other people would be the same as you would do for yourself. You can't breathe for them or eat for them, but 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 in terms of uh, the affective dimension, you're you're caring and you're thinking. You are concerned about your community in the largest sense. So you vow to do that, and you engage in certain specific practices, but. Your point of departure is one that's where you can't envision at all what that would mean to go through that change because your value, you're like me and everyone else, you're essentially self-absorbed and then you're valuing, you're trying to value something that's quite different from that and reaches out far beyond it. So it's, it's an aspiration and you set out and do it. But initially, you can't really envision what that would mean. You can't envision much about it, except if insofar as you've been inspired by somebody who you think might embody those, those bodhisattva values, mm-hmm. or there are examples, whether historically accurate or not, there are examples from history of people who were like that. Mm-hmm. And you read about those and you hear about those and you model yourself on that to transform yourself into to alter your values, which you do, if you're successful at all, gradually by coming towards that goal. And you you come to understand that what you set out to achieve is a completely naive, immature, and inaccurate version of that. But you're headed towards something that you begin to see more clearly, and you begin to embody it in certain respects. And you, throughout your entire life, you move in that direction. But but the unachievability for me is that I I can't picture um, what that would mean in its complete and total accomplishment. But that wouldn't matter because we're talking about relative uh, trajectory that takes you in a direction towards what you would ultimately aspire to be. So so the question is just how, what strikes you in that religious version of aspiration that you think might be worth my thinking about or you're pointing out? Yeah, so in the background behind the book is a distinction that I never draw between, but it was always in my head, between a kind of platonic model and a kind of Aristotelian model of aspiration. So the Aristotelian model says that, you know, somewhere in your late teens or early 20s, you begin aspiring. That is, you try to become the person that you know, you are going to be when you're an adult and you try to acquire virtue. Aristotle gives this process of habituation, which is the acquisition of virtue, but virtue is really just a way of caring about stuff, about other people and about, you know, institutions and about knowledge and all that. Right. And then at some point, like maybe you're 35, you have acquired some virtue 
And that's it. Now, the rest of your life is living out those virtues. That is realizing that is in, in the sense of ambition, sort of, or just in the sense of satisfaction of the virtues that you have. And so that's the Aristotelian story. The Platonic story is more like, you know, at some point you become rational and then you just keep aspiring, okay, forever. <laughs> the aspiration never ends, it's infinite. And I find both of these pictures compelling and I find their criticisms of one another sort of compelling. So the platonic criticism of the Aristotelian is like, why would you ever stop? Why wouldn't you want to achieve perfection? And you're clearly not going to achieve perfection in just a mere, you know, 30 years. And the Aristotelian one says, life is not all about how perfect you are. That is, your whole life is not a self-improvement project of you. That's a pretty selfish way of looking at your life. Your life, you make yourself into as good a person as you can. And then at a certain point, your life is more about what you can do for other people than how much you can improve yourself. Even if the avenue in which you want to improve yourself is how much you care about other people. And so I think at the end of the day, this is what I've come to. At the end of the day, the deep difference between Plato and Aristotle can be traced to the fact that Plato thinks your soul is immortal and Aristotle does not. Aristotle thinks at a certain point you die and that's it because the soul is just the form of the living body. It cannot outlast the body. Whereas Plato thinks you have an immortal soul. And in fact, that soul can be reincarnated later. You can keep going. You can perfect yourself. Okay. So I think Plato's view is more like the religious view of, of actually most religions, not, not, you know, not just the one you're talking about. And the Aristotelian view is more like the kind of secular humanist type uh, point of view, right? So, so, so I think you know, I think the idea of infinite aspiration, I don't find it incoherent. Some people do. Some people are like, look, if you're going to have a goal, you have to be able to arrive at it. But where I do have some sort of puzzles is that at least on my way of thinking about aspiration, there's a way in which insofar as you're aspiring, you've always got one eye on yourself. Aspiration is a, is a self-involved process because you're gauging how close you are to your goal. And so, for example, suppose that I want to be more generous and, you know, I am generous to you, right? Suppose that if I'm an aspirant, I'm asking myself both, okay, like, did he like the gift that I got him? But I'm also saying, how good of a display of generosity was that? Like, where am I? How, am I improving? Am I getting close to it, right? Like, it's like, I've got one eye on myself. There's something a bit self-involved about aspiration intrinsically. And so the sort of puzzle for me about the thing you're describing is that there's almost, I think, a little bit of a self-undermining character in devoting your whole life to the project of turning yourself into the sort of person that doesn't think about themselves. Because that whole time you're thinking about yourself all the time, at least a little bit. With um, one of, and yes. if like as a Sicilian, at some point you just be like, you know, I'm good enough. This is as good as I'm going to get. I'm not going to try to be more selfless than I am now. That's the point at which you can actually just start thinking about other people and stop thinking about <laughs> cultivating yourself. Yeah. Okay, that's good. That's helpful. Um, and the the Buddhists say, well, at a certain point, the the, the self interest part or improving oneself drops. It just drops mm -hmm. out of the picture. Um, but you can see why, if it's an infinite process, it might still keep creeping in. But in in, in Buddha, I should say, in the traditional version of this, um, there is rebirth of, of sort of 
a non-Hindu form of reincarnation in the picture. So it can be infinite because you're infinite and it goes forever. It's just right. that in my- It's like the Gautami picture, makes sense. Exactly, yeah. But in my, like a secularized, you know, version, <laughs> this is it and your aspiration and why I regard it as unattainable because you're just doing that now. You've got this 30 years and that's all you got. Yeah. So I was thinking earlier about a, a business person who's very successful and successful in terms of making lots and lots of money is turns out to be very wealthy and realizes that he, in this case is, you know, not given great respect or appreciation because people regard him as greedy and self-absorbed and, you know, and so on. So he realizes actually there are other people who attain the respect of the community because they, they give and they're, they're, they're generous. And so this person aspire, no, not aspires, has the ambition <laughs> to put it in the other terms, still extrinsic rewards, right? Uh, wants to be the person who is appreciated and admired and respected in the community and therefore gives. So it's like purchasing the admiration and respect by virtue of being generous, right? But let's say this person ends up being in a philanthropic world and runs across a donor who is, who is not giving for extrinsic reasons and is not giving for her own satisfaction, but is giving because people in the community needs it. And what she wants for herself is to be a person who engages with her community in that way. And what she really wants is to help people be able to do what they need and want. So I was trying to think, okay, there's, there's a slow transformation going on here, but eventually he becomes an aspirant, right? Where he's, his goals of being respected, admired, and wealthy give way to, if he goes, if he takes it up, admiration for this donor who in, in her mind is just helping. And she even gives anonymously. She doesn't need to take credit for, she doesn't need buildings named after her at the university and she doesn't need this or that. So that transition seems nebulous, right? And slow and inarticulate, right? And maybe in some sense, as I think you mentioned, I don't remember this exactly, you can be both ambitious and aspirational simultaneously. I think you can because to the extent that you're fulfilling a value you already have, you're ambitious, but to the extent that you're also acquiring it, you're aspirational. So you could definitely do both at the same time. But I think that suppose he succeeded and suppose that at the end of the day, he was just as into giving for its own sake as she was. I suspect that, and if you asked him, when did you start? When did this get started? I think he might say when I met her, but he might say no. It was when I started giving topically, because if you think about it, like suppose that I'm rich and suppose that I'm only giving money in order that people will think about me in a certain way. What is the way that I want them to think about me? Well, I want them to think of me as generous, as the kind of person who helps other people, right? Why do I want that? That is, why do I want to be thought about in that way? It must be that on some level, however, you know, in however attenuated way, I sort of do appreciate the thought that that's a good way to be. I, I, my grip on it is really like shaky so that I can't really get the the way that it's a good way to be except by having people think of me that way and kind of farming out farming it out to them right but 
as I come to like, what I'm really learning is the principle behind why I was giving from the very start, even before I met her. Yeah. Okay. So giving for ulterior motives is still giving and it's likely to be a good thing for you as well in that it may get you further down the road towards some transformation of those uh, those motives your motives your motivation may change right so it depends on the ulterior motive i think so i think the kind of motive that is somewhat amenable to being transformed is like the motive of wanting to be respected because wanting to be respected is wanting other people to have certain mental states about you right wanting other people to have certain beliefs and attitudes towards you and then if we spell out those attitudes they're going to involve things like the belief that you're generous or something like that. And then at the end of the day, that has to be cashed out in the value of being, why would you want people to think of you as generous if you didn't think it was good to be generous, right? But I actually think you can imagine cases where the person is giving like only because for instance, you know, I need to donate in order to belong to a certain set of people because my boss isn't gonna promote me unless he sees that I'm part of that elite. And actually I just wanna make more money. Right. So that kind of ulterior motive, the person could still experience a transformation, but that ulterior motive isn't one that already speaks to the transformation as being underway. Yeah. Yeah. I think you mentioned this thought in your book, but I can even find it in my own life and experience where I pretend to be a certain way because I'd like people to think of me that way. But the more I pretend it, the more I practice it, in other words, the more I think it, the more, you know, just neurologically that becomes an option for me. And I, I, I move in some, to some extent in that direction towards being what I was initially only pretending to be. Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting phenomenon because I think that there are sort of two forces operative at the same time. So one of them is the one that you've just described, which is kind of the fake it till you make it thing. And I think it's really true that pretty much all aspiration involves some kind of pretentiousness, some kind of pretending to grasp something better than you do, because that's how you're orienting yourself. You're pulling yourself in the direction of where you're trying to go. And so it's like, what am I going to do in order to learn about Zola? I have to pretend that I'm a Zola scholar. I have to pretend that I'm capable of like writing essays on Zola and understanding Zola. And like, even though I'm not trained in like literary theory or whatever I'm supposed to be in order to really understand it, I just got to kind of fake it for a while. And then hopefully I'll get, I'll catch up with myself as it were. I'll catch up with my own self-image. So that's one force. But there is another force that's worth attending to, which is that, what's the word for it? I'm not going to remember the word, but like there's the, the, the there's the stuff people often have as philosophers where they're like, I'm just pretending like I'm not a real philosopher. Okay, maybe it will come to me. But in any case, I think that what can happen is that if you engage in the pretense for too long in a static way, where you just go through the motions of the pretense, but you're not actually growing and learning, the pretense becomes ossified. And you also, it becomes like this shell that you're worried about someone piercing, right? So it's like, suppose that, you know, I, I only ever read like three of the novels, but I was like talking about it all the time, pretending like I was all into Zola. And then I'm like worried that someone's going to ask me about one of the novels I haven't read. And so there it's like, I have a front or something. 
So I think that's another, so I think you have to pretend in a specific way. You have to pretend in a way where the goal of the pretense is in some way to transcend the pretense. And if you just let yourself get comfortable or stuck in the pretense, then I think you just become pretentious in the other sense where you're not really learning and growing. Yeah, good point. That, that's great. Yeah, so you you create the shell that you're trying to protect and where you're hiding when you should be reaching out and, and, and honestly acquiring more more knowledge, more more openness to others and, and getting what they know about Zola in this case. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really helpful. Okay, well, you know, I think the only seriously generous thing we can do for you at this point, you've been so generous for us, is let you go join your family and have something to eat since <laughs> it's approaching nine o'clock in Chicago. And so I really appreciate this. I really appreciate your work. I should mention you also have a book on anger from NYT Press. I'm, I've ordered it. I'm hoping to get it. And we'll be reading what you have to say about anger as well, since that's also a theme I've written about. So anyway, it's been a great pleasure. And we thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any comments you want to add at the end or are you just ready to eat? No, I think that's it. But thank you so much for having me. Yeah, appreciate it very much. Well, I hope to see you again. Yeah, bye.